Sometime this winter, we will likely hear the words from a local weatherman. A storm is coming. It will drop anywhere between 18 and 24 inches of snow. And what will everyone inevitably do? Uh, we will run out to the local grocery store and get our supplies for French toast. We will buy enough milk and eggs and bread to hold us over during the cold, snowy storm. And you, you know this is true because you've turned up to the store just a little too late to find all of those supplies gone. But everything else remains. Um, now, some of us have, have bet against the weatherman, uh, and we avoid the crazy store altogether, and sometimes we've won that bet as hardly any snow has fallen. And sometimes we've lost that bet to be stuck inside without our delicious French toast supplies. Uh, generally speaking, though, uh, we, we make our way to the store because we prepare for what we know is coming. We live today in light of what we will expect will happen tomorrow. It's only natural. But our understanding of what will happen tomorrow is severely limited. We can't know what will really happen tomorrow. We can't know the future unless we're told it by someone with divine insight. And that is what is happening in Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. It's actually what is happening in the book as a whole. Isaiah, he has been telling the people of Judah what lies ahead for them. He has been urging the people of God to turn from their sin and to trust in the Lord. Isaiah has announced some dreadful news. An exile is coming. For their sin, God will send His people out of the land that He gave to them. Just like God sent Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden for their sin, so the Lord will send the people of Israel, people of Judah, out of the promised land of Canaan for their sin. Isaiah has been announcing to them that this punishment, this judgment is coming. And he's also been telling them how to live in the present. This morning, as we turn to study Isaiah chapters 24 through 27, Isaiah, he even looks beyond the events of the exile. Isaiah tells the people of Israel what is coming on the final day of judgment. And that this ought to impact how they live in the present. And, and I hope that you're beginning to see and sense how this passage of Scripture is so relevant for us today. God has told us what will happen in the end. And He has told us how to live in the present. He has called us to trust in Him through the storms. For one day the storm clouds will break. Jesus Christ will descend from heaven to finally give His people unending, unbreakable joy. He has promised them in the heavenly glories of the new creation. God has told us what will happen in the end. The end will consist of judging the unbelieving world. And it will consist of giving eternal joy to those who trust in God. How then should we live? We should, as Isaiah chapter 26 verse 4 says, trust in the Lord forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. This is the message of Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. It's what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning. If you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 24. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, that can be found on page 585, 585. And uh, while you're turning there, let me 
allow, uh, let me just set a little bit of the context of our study uh, this morning. And just so you know, we're going to be flipping through these chapters a lot, Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. Uh, and just so you know, when I refer to a chapter, I'm referring to the, probably the larger number there in the text. When I refer to a verse, that's the smaller number there in the text. hope that will be helpful to you. The book of Isaiah is, is a single, carefully crafted message to the people living in the southern kingdom of Judah during the 8th century B.C. Isaiah's message is summarized really in his name, what his name means, which is God is salvation. Isaiah is delivering this message from different vantage points as he works his way through the book. Last week we studied Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, and in that section we noticed that Isaiah presented this message of salvation from a national vantage point. Isaiah systematically told Judah about the destruction of the nations in the known world, while at the same time reminding them that God would save a people for himself from every tongue and tribe and nation. And the passage that we're studying together this morning picks up really right where we left off. Isaiah chapters 24 through 27 present Isaiah's message of salvation from the vantage point of the end of all things. As we transition from chapter 23 to chapter 24, our perspective transitions from God's judgment on the known nations of the world to God's judgment on the whole world. And in these chapters, Isaiah is calling us to trust in God for salvation in view of the end. The end is coming. So Isaiah tells us, the Lord will judge the world. He will redeem the world. And the Lord will receive praise from the world. Those three points will make up the outline of the rest of the sermon. I think there's an insert there provided your bullets. And I hope that will help you follow along as we work our way through this text. Let's turn now and consider our first point. God will judge the world. And as we do, we're going to begin by reading from chapter 24. We're going to read Isaiah chapter 24 verses 1 to 12. Isaiah 24 verses 1 to 12. Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate, and He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so with the seller, as with the lender, so with the borrower, as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse devours the earth. And its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. The wine mourns. The vine languishes. All the merry hearted sigh. The mirth of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the jubilant has ceased. The mirth of the lyre is stilled. No more do they drink wine with singing. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. They, the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for the lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city. The gates are battered into ruins. Well, the, Lord, the Lord's intentions to punish the world are quite clear, aren't they? 
The language of punishment and judgment, especially there in verse 1, you'll notice, should remind us really of what is said in the beginning of the Bible, Genesis. When God was creating the world and all that was in it, He was filling the world. But what we're told here is that the Lord is emptying the earth and unsettling it. The Lord's judgment here is cast in terms of reversing and undoing His creation. The idea of scattering the inhabitants harkens back to the Lord's judgment and scattering Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden as a result of their sin. It's, it's also reminiscent of His judgment at the Tower of Babel when He scattered those who were endeavoring to make a name for themselves. Notice that in verse 2 we're told that everyone on the earth, regardless of their position in society, will face this judgment. And this judgment is certain. For the Lord has spoken it. Verse 3. Why will the Lord do this? The Lord will do this because of what the inhabitants of the earth have done. Verse 5 tells us that the inhabitants of the earth have transgressed God's laws, violated His statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. When have the inhabitants of the earth done that? Well, when have they not transgressed God's laws, violated His statutes, and broken His everlasting covenant. The truth is that ever since Adam and Eve sinned and rebelled against God, all mankind descending from them continue to carry out their rebellion against God. God made His glory plain to us in the created order. And we live before Him in our rebellion. And we are without excuse. The Lord told Adam that a consequence of his sin was that the ground was cursed because of him. Thorns and thistles would now begin to spring up from the ground, all because Adam wanted to take God's crown and rule his own life. Adam's transgressions not only brought man low, it was the reason that death and disease would begin to occur in the world. And now, because of him, the ground would even be difficult to sow. Isaiah says in verse 6, a curse devours the earth. Isaiah is not saying anything new here. He is saying what we have known since Genesis 3, that the earth mourns and withers. Or to put it in the language of the New Testament of the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 to 22, the creation was subjected to futility. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. What Paul says in the New Testament, what Isaiah says here, is the world has been broken because of man's sin. And the brokenness of the created order acts actually as a witness to our guilt. Again, verse 6, a curse devours the earth and the inhabitants suffer for their guilt. This is part of God's judgment on the world. It began in Genesis 3, it continues on in our day, and one day God's final judgment will arrive. The writhing of the creation that we see and experience in our lifetimes through disease, decay, and death is not only a testimony to our guilt, but a testament of the coming final judgment. What we are experiencing in our world with disease, decay, and death are like the first contractions that a woman experiences when she is in labor and about to give birth. Those contractions silence a woman. And according to verses 7 through 11, 
On the last day, God's judgment will silence the proud city. The joy of the city is even banished. Here's one of the important images that Isaiah is going to use in these chapters. He will use images of nations and cities and the earth almost interchangeably at times. But we need to stop here and admit something. Our experience of life in this world testifies to the truth of what we're reading here. We see a world that is broken. And we ourselves know that we are broken. We, we see the world that we live in has been marred by Adam's fall. And we can see it in our hearts, can't we? We are filled with thoughts of murder, envy, lust, anger, and greed. And, and all of these things tell us that we are sons of Adam. And that we would have done what he did at the tree. We, can read this, we, we can't read this passage of judgment and, and hold ourselves at arm's length from the world that it describes. We deserve what is depicted here. And we know it. Cast your eyes now across toward the end of the chapter. Verse 17 of chapter 24. Consider this, this additional description of judgment upon the world. Isaiah chapter 24, verse 17 to 20. Terror and pit are the snare are upon you. O inhabitants of the earth, he who flees at the sound of terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lie heavy upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. Here we're learning that when judgment does come, it cannot be escaped. In verse 18, there is the image of a man falling into a pit, trying to climb out, only to be ensnared and brought back down. The theme of God undoing His created order reemerges there in verse 19, and the theme of the, the guiltiness of the earth for its transgressions are repeated there in verse 20. The language of certain judgment is almost, almost too much to take. Like a drunken man, the earth staggers and falls. And then we're told that it will not, notice the certainty, it will not rise again from this judgment. And what keeps the earth from getting back up? Look at verse 20 and see what keeps the earth from getting back up. Do you notice that it was the transgressions that lies heavy upon it? Sin and rebellion weigh the earth down, knock it down, and keep it down. From God's perspective, the problem facing the world is not crushing global debt. It is not genocide. It is not poverty or hunger or a lack of education. It is not greed. It is not sexual immorality. This, these things are the rotten, sinful fruit of man's kind rebellion against God. These sins are rooted in man's inherent sinfulness. Good fruit comes from a good tree. Bad fruit comes from a bad tree. Mankind has rebelled against God. And it is the problem that mankind has brought upon itself. And do you hear Isaiah's message? God will judge the world. There's no hope to be found in the world. The world will not get up from this weight of sin. Which means that if there is to be any hope at all, 
God must do something about it. And God did something about it. Friends, this is the good news of the Bible. The eternal Son of God took flesh to himself. He became a man. His name was Jesus. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And he lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He never rebelled. He never transgressed God's laws. He never violated his statutes. He never broke the everlasting covenant. On the contrary, he was obedient to God the Father to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And on the cross, Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself. He bore the punishment and judgment of all of those who'd ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in him. And three days after his death, God the Father raised him up from the grave, vindicating him, thus proving to us that those who turn from their sins and place their faith in him will be forgiven. If you're here this morning, and you're not a believer, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then friend, you need to know that the only way to escape the judgment that is coming to the world is through faith in the one who died as a substitute for the sins of the world. Salvation comes through God and God alone. So believe that Jesus lived for you the life that you and I have not lived. Believe that he died for your transgressions, bearing the punishment that our sins deserve. And believe that he was raised from the grave so that you might be accepted as righteous in God's sight and received into God's glorious kingdom on the last day. Isaiah chapter 24, it eliminates any of the remaining vestiges of hope that we might have had in this world by telling us that God will judge the world. No hope. Hope is found in God and God alone. He is our salvation. And this is what is announced as chapter 25 opens. Let's turn now and consider our next point. God will redeem the world. And as we do, we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 25, verses 1 to 12. Isaiah 25, verses 1 to 12. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners, a heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. And he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him 
that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in His place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And He will spread out His hand in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out His hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low His pompous pride together with the skill of His hands. And the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. There's so much good news for the people of God in these verses. But let us not miss the fact that he has planned to do good to his people. Verse 1 tells us the reason for the praise. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. And is our God making things up as He goes along? No. These plans were formed of old, faithful and sure. God has determined and decreed that He would bring these wonderful plans to pass. Our God is sovereign. He is in control of this universe. The universe to which He is bringing both judgment and as we see here, joy. Judgment is coming to the world, but so is joy. And it is all part of His plan. Brothers and sisters, let this be a comfort to your soul. This is one of the many reasons that we can trust our God in the storms of this life. The history of the world, the history that we are living in, is not like a construction project that you're in the middle of, and you suddenly discover a problem, and you have to come up with a plan to solve it. I remember when my father-in-law and I were were remodeling our kitchen. We were tearing out cabinets and suddenly we discovered a vent, a hidden vent that we did not know was there. And then we had to make a decision. We had to come up with a plan. How are we going to uh, reroute this vent? Well, God's interaction with history is not like that at all. He doesn't make up plans as he goes. He's not surprised by things. He has one grand and glorious plan for the world. He has the power to carry it out. And he graciously cares for his people as he brings all of his redemptive purposes to pass. Let this be a comfort to your soul today and every day that you fear and feel this world is spinning out of control. God has a good and gracious plan of redemption from of old. And he is going to bring it to pass. He is even now bringing it to pass. Now, Redemption is is actually a complex idea. And one of the things we see is that it includes the defeat of our enemies. Verses 2 and 5 of of chapter 25 make that plain. The imagery of a proud city and a hostile nation returns. Their defeat is inextricably bound up to the glory of God in redemption. There's a a reversal that takes place, a reversal of fortune that takes place in this redemption. Despair has been turned into delight. These verses also teach us that redemption includes a surprise. Were you surprised by verse 3? I think you should have been. I think the first readers of this book would have been surprised by verse 3. Strong peoples will glorify the Lord. Ruthless nations will fear God. We're being told here is that God's enemies are being redeemed and transformed by the mercy of God. Gentile nations are included in God's ultimate praise and glory. This would have been surprising to an Israelite reader of this book. Verse 4 reminds us that salvation is found in God alone. He is the stronghold. He is the shelter. 
He is the shade. Isaiah was a good preacher. Must have been a Baptist for those three points. Um, redemption, it also includes the, the restoration of joy. You remember in chapter 24, the uh, judgment silenced the joy of the world and the wine was terrible and the food was bitter. But here we're seeing that God, He renews the world's joy and relocates the world's joy in Him. He is the one who is spreading the feast for all peoples. Do you wonder where the Apostle John got, got the imagery for the great marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19? I think he got it from Isaiah. And Isaiah sets this vision up on the mountain of the Lord. He is deliberately trying to lift our gaze up to glory. And did you capture the, the four things I just mentioned redemption includes? Redemption includes the defeat of our enemies, the reversal of fortunes, the surprise inclusion of the nations, and the restoration of joy. Redemption certainly includes other things, but in the first six verses of chapter 25, I want you to see that redemption includes at least those four things. And I want you to see them because I think they actually reemerge in these chapters, elsewhere in these chapters. So let's consider the reversal of fortunes. Flip ahead to chapter 26 and take a look at verses 1 to 5. Here in these verses, Isaiah, he returns to the images of cities. And as we read, notice how the people of God rejoice in God accomplishing salvation for their city, while at the same time bringing the lofty city low. Isaiah chapter 26, verses 1 to 5. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever for the Lord God is an everlasting rock for he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. Even in this reversal of fortunes, that is being promised. Isaiah is teaching and telling the people of Judah to trust in the Lord. He begins by mentioning a day in the future in that day, but his point is surely trust in Him this day and every day until we reach that day, for He is our salvation. Keep your mind stayed on the Lord. Even though Isaiah is speaking of future realities, there are lessons for the present, aren't there? Judah is in a time of turmoil with threatening nations all around her. And Isaiah is telling Judah, the Lord has shown me the end of all things. He has good for us. He will reverse our despised state. He is an everlasting rock, so let's trust in Him. This is in many ways how chapter 27 comes to an end. Isaiah chapter 27 verses 12 and 13 communicate to us that the scattered people of the earth will return. The lost will be found. God will reverse the fortunes of His people on the last day. And His people will include the nations of the earth. You know, it could be easy for the people of Judah to despise the nations around them. But the redemption that the Lord has in mind is a worldwide redemption. He intends to forgive and redeem people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And as we're thinking about this, we need to be clear that we're not talking about a universal salvation. Not absolutely every man, woman, and child on this earth will be finally saved. After all, we read Isaiah chapter 24. God will punish the wicked. 
When we say that God's plan of redemption is worldwide, what we're saying is that God will forgive and redeem people from all over the world. And this is something that is often stressed to the people of Israel in the Old Testament itself. God's grand purposes of salvation include other nations. And that happens in these chapters. In chapter 26, verse 15, Isaiah tells the people of God that the Lord will enlarge their borders. Isaiah 26, 15. But you have increased the nation, O Lord. You have increased the nation. You are glorified. You have enlarged all of the borders of the land. Expansion needs to take place. Because nations will be coming in to be a part of God's redeemed people. That's what Isaiah will say in chapter 54, verses 2 through 3, where he picks up this imagery of expansion. But just skip ahead to chapter 27, verse 6 for now. Isaiah chapter 27, verse 6. In the day, in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. The people of God will fill the whole world with blessing and rich food. And of course, we can't forget what we read back in chapter 25. The rich banquet that God is spreading for His people is actually for all peoples. Isaiah chapter 25, verse 6, on this mountain, by which Isaiah almost certainly means the heavenly city of Jerusalem, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged Wine of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well refined. Brothers and sisters, I wonder if you've thought about this. The local church now has the privilege of being an earthly expression of what will be a heavenly reality. We want to pray for our church to be an expression of what that heavenly assembly will be like. We should pray that the Lord be pleased to bring to our body people from every tongue and tribe and nation. And we need to remember that our church is an embassy of heaven, an outpost of the kingdom of God. Those who want to be a part of the assembly of heaven need to be part of an assembly, an embassy on earth. It is from this embassy that we go out and we scatter. We go out as ambassadors inviting people from every tongue and tribe and nation to come into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. As we invite sinners to come to the Savior, we are inviting them to the feast that the Lord will host in heaven. We are charged with handing out His invitations. So let's hand out as many as we can through handing out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Perhaps one of the most important things that we need to remember about redemption is that it includes the defeat of our enemies. Redemption includes the defeat of our enemies. In particular, it includes the defeat of dynasties, demonic forces, and death. All of these things are mentioned in these chapters. Uh, we don't have time to walk through all three, so let's just focus on the last one, death. Uh, take a look there at Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8. Isaiah 25, verse 8. He will, no doubt about it, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken the defeat of death. Flip over to chapter 26. Take a look at verse 
19 of chapter 26. The defeat of death turns up there too. Isaiah 26, 19. Your dead shall live. It's going to happen. They shall live. Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. They will be resurrected. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light and the earth will give birth to dead, to the dead. What is unmistakable here is the fact that the Lord will accomplish this victory over the great enemy of mankind. God will defeat the enemy of death. And we know that this victory has been announced in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15, particularly in verses 49 to 57. There Paul writes, Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, and here Paul quotes Isaiah, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah was looking forward to this day. The day of death's defeat. In fact, in some ways, we're still looking forward to that final victory. We're still looking forward to the day when the dead shall live and their bodies shall rise, as Isaiah says in 26.19. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55, the Apostle Paul reads Isaiah's idea of death being swallowed up forever as being fulfilled when Jesus returns to raise the dead from their graves and give them imperishable bodies. And Paul views God's victory over death with as much certainty, if not more, than Isaiah does. From Paul's vantage point, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been promised that on the last day, the day of judgment, we too will be raised from our graves. Jesus' resurrection from the dead, from Paul's vantage point, is the first fruits of the harvest of resurrections to come. It's the beginning of the harvest that has already begun and coming. Death has begun to be swallowed up in victory, and we see that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's victory over death has been announced, but it has not yet been finalized. We live in between the accomplishment, the full accomplishment of redemption. We live in between the accomplishment of redemption and the full realization of redemption. And this is what theologians will sometimes call the already and the not yet. We are already saved and we're not yet fully saved. After all, God has not yet wiped away all of the tears from our eyes. Isaiah 25, 8. Isaiah and the writers of scriptures are honest about the tension that the people of God live in. There is a waiting that must occur. Take a look at chapter 25, verse 9. Isaiah 25, verse 9. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him, that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This is just as true for us as it was for those in Isaiah's day. We are forgiven, and we have not been forsaken, but we must endure the hardships of this life, trusting in our God. 
This is much, this is a, a much about what uh, Isaiah chapters 26 and 27 are about. There's a tension that the people of God live in. On the one hand, they face the challenges of living in an unbelieving world where God will, from time to time, intervene and punish sin. Take a look at verses 20 and 21 of Isaiah 26. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its stain. The picture here, especially there in verse 21, is of God punctuating his activity in the world by punishing the unbelieving nations. We live in a world where God still, from time to time, is making his judgment upon sin known. On the other hand, the people of God face the challenges of being disciplined by God for their sin. Consider Isaiah chapter 27, verses 8 and 9. Isaiah 27, verses 8 and 9. Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this guilt of Jacob will be atoned for, and this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no ashram or incense altars will remain standing. Here we're being told that the exile is coming as a consequence of Israel and Judah's idolatry. But notice that it has a purpose. And the purpose is to purify the people of God. To remove idolatry from their lives. You see, once God redeems His people, He purposes to purify them. To fit them for heaven. He has promised to bring to completion our salvation. And part of that includes being sanctified and being made ready for heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches us that the Father disciplines the children whom He loves. God still interacts with His people, even in this new covenant era, in this way. He disciplines the children He loves. Have you ever considered that some of the hardships facing the evangelical church in the U.S. today may be part of the Lord's plan to crush some of our idols? Have we trusted in men for our safety and security? Have we trusted in and relied upon what appeared, to be, what appeared to be an indifferent cultural host instead of the God of creation? Have we made the idea of religious freedom an idol? Brothers and sisters, let's be clear. We want religious freedom, but we don't need it to be Christians. Just ask our brothers and sisters in Christ who are worshiping Jesus Christ in Iran or in Somalia. They don't need religious freedom to follow Jesus and neither do we, even though we may want it and long for it and pray for it. We do not trust in an idea. We trust in God. Part of the problem of the evangelical church in the U.S. may have been that we have assumed that we've made it to the future day that Isaiah is talking about. That we've made it to glory when we haven't. Perhaps there are some personal idols in our lives that the Lord is in the midst of crushing and removing. And let's be honest, it's not a fun place to be. It's quite painful. Spiritual pruning at the hands of the Lord can and does hurt. Still, brother or sister, I promise you this, 
The Lord only wounds us to heal us. He is making us more whole. Even as he crushes and cuts idolatry out of our lives, we can trust him through these storms and struggles. We can endure the natural storms that we face in this world. We can endure the storms of disease and displacement, despisement and decay. We can endure the world despising us as God's people. We can endure God's discipline because we know that as part of his gracious plan of redemption, we can endure even death because we know the end. The plan of our God, the plan from of old is to swallow up death in victory. And because Jesus has been raised from his grave and been given an imperishable body, imperishable body on the last day, we will be raised from our graves and be given a body like Jesus. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, so we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. Because we know this is true, and because we know God will redeem the world, this is why we can sing for joy on this day, and why we will sing for joy on the last day. So let's turn now and briefly consider our third point. God will receive praise from the world. This is the final thing that these chapters teach us. Here we're thinking about the restoration of joy. You know, scholars have recognized about these uh, four chapters that they're made up of songs. Uh, And I think that in these songs we're seeing the restoration of joy that comes from the knowledge of God's redeeming love. Uh, Let's work from beginning to end. So start back in chapter 24. Uh, Turn back to verse 14 of Isaiah 24. Here we're told that the peoples from the east and from the west, people from all over the world will sing for joy. Isaiah 24, verses 14 to 16. They lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore, in the east, give glory to the Lord. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, of glory to the righteous one. We already considered the singing that emerged at the beginning of chapter 25, where God's people sing for joy because of the wonderful things God has planned and done. So skip ahead to chapter 26. Chapter 26, here we're told that the people of God will sing for the safety and security that they find in God and in His city. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Do you see why there will be singing in the land of Judah on that future day? There will be singing because... Of God's salvation. God will protect his people on the day of judgment. Just as walls and bulwarks protect a city from a powerful army. Let's consider the final song that appears in these chapters. Turn to the beginning of chapter 27. After declaring that the Lord will defeat all evil in verse 1. The people of God are exhorted to sing. Let's begin reading there in verse 2. Isaiah 27 verse 2. In that day a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it day and night. I wonder if that that vineyard imagery reminds you of anything. Certainly we've been given some imagery, vineyard imagery in these chapters, but I think it should remind us of chapter 5 in particular, of Isaiah chapter 5. The Lord told us in that chapter he's going to judge his people 
that he was not going to protect his vineyard, but instead allow it to be overrun. Do you notice what he says here? There is coming a day when the Lord will eternally protect his people, his vineyard. He will keep it and protect this vineyard. He has no briars or thorns to battle in this vineyard. If he did, he would take care of them. This is a day of perfect peace. And so the people of God sing for joy on that last and final day. God will receive praise from the world. And as we conclude, I want us to ponder a question. If we know that this is the joyful, glorious end that the people of God will one day experience, then how shall we live today? How shall we live today? Isaiah? Other prophets, Jesus, Paul, the Apostle John, they all tell us of the end. The end is a reality frequently spoken of in the Scriptures. It is a reality that will include judgment for those who do not believe and joy for those who do. We should be sure that neither death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We should be sure of this because He has told us that nothing ever will separate us from His love. And so today and every day, we should cling to Him in life's storms until he brings us through, or until he brings us home. Let's pray together.